We're in the book of Ephesians again, if you want to turn there, in chapter 4. Not long ago, I came across a news story out of Pomona, California. A 71-year-old woman protested when city workers spent two days cleaning up her rat-infested home. She had allowed more than 20 tons of garbage to pile up. The odor was so offensive that cleanup crews said they had trouble breathing. And at times they had to duck their heads to avoid hitting them on the ceilings because they were walking on three feet deep pile of garbage. The Pomona Fire Chief Tom Lee described the mess. There's everything imaginable in there. Clothes, rotting food, rats, bugs, you name it. It's unbelievable. And the woman was unhappy with the cleanup because she said she's been accumulating the contents of her home for over 20 years. It's my whole life, she said. But just as amazing was the fact that there was no connection in her mind between the 20 years' worth of garbage in her home and her admission that she had been ill for the entire time. Sin can be like that in our lives. We can get attracted or imprisoned by certain practices They begin to feel like our whole life we can't let go of them. We don't want to let go of them. And over time they accumulate while we fail to realize that they are making us spiritually ill, hindering us from drawing closer to God. Things like bitterness and greed and pride and lust and anger can become so much a part of our lives. They eat away at our soul, gnawing away at our joy and our appreciation of those around us. There's a reason God speaks against such things as the, because often the greatest damage they do isn't to others, but it's to us. They can harden our hearts and make us deaf to the Spirit's working. Jesus died to set us free from sin and death, to provide a clean break so we can begin to live out a new life as his follower. Paul had begun chapter 4 of Ephesians by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of, or suitable, or appropriate to your calling. The calling he's talking about is the call to follow Jesus. And then in the verses that follow, he sets out to explain what kind of life is suitable to being a Christian. The first characteristic of a worthy life is the focus of verses 2 through 6 of Ephesians 4, one that is united with God and his people, the church. It's in these verses that he reminds us to bear with each other in love, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, because he says then there's only one body, one Spirit, one eternal hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The only life worthy or appropriate of being a follower of Christ is one in union with God and with his people. Without both, God and his body, our faith grows cold and distant. He goes on, and the second thing he says about a life that's suitable to our call is found in verses 7 through 16, where he says it is a life characterized by growth and service. Paul says God has even given us gifts to make it happen. These gifts, he says, are an expression of his grace intended to promote not just unity, as we work together, but the growth that naturally accompanies working together. And among these 
are the gifts of those who are able to equip and train each one of us to be involved in service. To use Paul words, to equip God's people for works of service or ministry. The point of which, he says, is so that the body of Christ will be built up so we can all reach unity in the faith, unity in knowledge, unity in maturity, and fullness in Christ. That happens, he says, in verse 16, as each of us does his, our part. The path of maturity goes through the work of service. And if you're not involved in ministry in some form, your growth is going to be hindered because a failure to mature is a failure to minister. So a life worthy of our calling is a life of unity and a life of growth in service. Now we come to verses 17 through 24. We come to the third characteristic Paul uses to describe a life worthy of our calling. And he says it's a life of personal holiness, a life of breaking with our past, because we say Jesus makes a difference. It's holiness that shows it's not just words. So in verse 17, he begins, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I know I've mentioned it before, but contrary to popular opinion, holiness does not mean being better than others or per becoming perfect. It does mean we are different, that we are to stand out because our understanding of what is right and wrong is going to be different from what the newspapers tell us is okay or what the news reports on TV tell us or celebrities tell us or our friends tell us or the courts tell us. It means we are to live by a different standard, have different values and understanding of what's right and wrong from the world around us. In quoting the prophet Isaiah, Paul told the Corinthians, Therefore, come out from them and be separate from them. In other words, be holy, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. And then I will welcome you and I will be your father and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What it does mean is that holiness by necessity addresses the whole issue of sin. The two cannot coexist. They're mutually exclusive. So Paul says you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, as the world does, in other words. So make a clean break. Be different. Clean up the trash that's made you sick all these years. And that would have been a big deal in a place like Ephesus, a leading city in the city of Asia Minor, a large natural port located at the intersection of major trade routes, wealthy and prosperous city. And with the wealth, they built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. It became a natural magnet for the worst mankind had to offer, a breeding ground for it, decadence. Those who prospered 
had an abundance of resources to pursue their every whim and the basis of desires. And so the city of Ephesus soon rivaled Corinth as one of the most immoral and wicked cities in all of the Roman Empire. Their religion itself was to deny themselves no no physical pleasure. And so a thriving sex trade rose within the temple that employed thousands of prostitutes and singers and dancers and priests and priestesses. And Paul says, have nothing to do with that futile life you used to live. Make a break from it. Get away from it. It may provide a moment of pleasure, but it doesn't go anywhere. You've discovered it's futile. Because people believed that the temple was protected by the goddess, few would dare to incur her wrath by stealing from the temple, so it became a safe haven for for people to deposit their wealth. It became a banking center. One of the richest art collections in existence in that day was owned and housed in the temple of Artemis. Greed flourished as a virtue with an insatiable desire for more of everything. Greed and wealth as a way of life are futile. They may make us comfortable for a time, but in the end, they lead nowhere. Around the temple, there was a quarter-mile-wide perimeter that served as an asylum for criminals. They were safe as long as they stayed within the confines of that quarter-mile. Here, with freedom from apprehension and punishment, the worst of the worst gathered, only adding to the corruption and vice. It was so bad that the Greek philosopher Heraclitus himself a pagan, referred to Ephesus as the darkness of vileness. The morals were lower than animals, and the inhabitants of Ephesus fit only to be drowned. This path of Epicurean delights was a dead end. It was futile. It was void of meaning. Yet that's the environment that the church found itself. That's the environment most in the church came out of. And there were still thousands of voices pressuring them to conform, to think as everyone else thought, to live as everyone else around them was living. So Paul tells them, make a break. You must no longer simply go along with the crowd. Live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The word for futile was used to refer to something that fails to produce the desired or promised results. It never succeeds. It would be something that holds out the hope of something, but it's always going to fall short. And that's what sin does in our life. It holds out the hope for happiness or enjoyment or pleasure, and it may seem to succeed for a moment in our lives, but in the end, it leaves us empty, searching for more. Make a clean break, Paul says. Have nothing to do with it. Instead of using the word futile, the New Living Translation says they were hopelessly confused. Eugene Peterson translates verses 17 and 18, and so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, and not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. That's futility. There's a type of caterpillar, and would you call up the first picture there, Daniel? that's called a processionary caterpillar. And it gets its name from that. They line up head to tail in a line whenever they move. They found some of these lines literally up to 300 caterpillars long. In 1896, a noted French naturalist named Jean-Henri Fabre 
conducted what has become a famous experiment on the processional caterpillar. In his experiment, he took a flower pot and placed the caterpillars on the rim. Go ahead and bring up the second one. End to end. And then he placed their favorite food inside the center of the circle. The caterpillars then started following each other, going around the lip of this pot for seven days. They covered what he estimated was a quarter mile until they started to drop dead from fatigue and starvation. That experiment became a classic example of mindless living, simply following the crowd, accepting what others do without question. That's futility of thinking that Paul is talking about. And so he says, don't do it. Don't just accept what everyone else tells you is okay or what everyone else is doing because you're to follow Christ. You are to be holy. You're to be different. Pursuing pleasure, whether it's your social life or sex or drugs or wealth, whatever may look appealing, it holds out the promise of happiness, but in the end, it lets us down like going in a circle, going nowhere except bondage, as we repeat the same thing over and over again, hoping that next time it will be different. There's no future in a life of hedonism, pleasure, only a momentary euphoria, and once it's gone, there's nothing to show for it. No hope in a life of greed and materialism, only things that go no further than our grave. No life in the accumulation of stuff, only bondage. The Christians in Ephesus were saved from that, Paul said, this empty way of life, the way their society offered. Yet every single day, they're surrounded by it. The friends they had gone out drinking with before were still there. The massive temple was still there with all its outward allure and tantalizing promises. When they went to the marketplace, they would see the male and female prostitutes they had been with. All the places where they had once spent so much time, they still had to pass on their way to and from work. The sounds and the smells and the memories were all around them with all that tremendous lure to go back once more to visit their old friends, go out one more time, visit the temple just once more. And Paul says, don't live like that anymore. Don't try to coexist with sin. Make a clean break. They were to be, as John MacArthur describes them, a small island of despised people in a giant cesspool of wickedness. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. A futility which led to a spiritual condition he then goes on to explain in these verses. A downward spiral away from God. He says, they're darkened in their understanding, spiritually living in darkness. They're separated from the life of God. They're ignorant of the ways of God. Their hearts are hardened. Literally, they've become callous or unfeeling to the things of God. They've lost all sensitivity. They've become apathetic, unable to feel even things like shame. Given over to sensuality, lacking in moral restraint. And they're greedy for more, never satisfied. You know, the Romans could be an extremely cruel people. Crucifixion may have been the worst punishment devised, but they had others also. One of them, which the Roman poet Virgil described, consisted of taking a captive and joining him face to face with a dead body. 
And then he had to bear that body of death until it slowly killed him. Without a clean break, we can try to do that with sin in our own life. Face to face to that body of death. In Romans 7, Paul calls our old sinful nature a body of death. And we can try to carry it around with us by holding on to the things Jesus died to set us free from. So influenced by our friends or society or desire that we allow them to coexist with Christ. And we rationalize and excuse it because everyone else is doing it. Because that's what the world is telling us is okay. Consider what Paul would call futility in our own cultural thinking. You don't have to very, look very hard to see similarities. Do you ever question the values of the shows you're watching on TV, the message they're giving, or do you simply watch it and take it in? You know, they say sex sells. It was big business back then, it's big business now. Remember Howard Stern used to be in the news all the time, the self-proclaimed king of all media. When he signed a multi-million dollar deal with CBS for Saturday night, version of his raunchy radio program, he said, television has changed. Standards have gone to an all-time low, and I'm here to represent it. But he wouldn't want let his children watch. Our society is the wealthiest in history of the world, which means we have disposable income to pursue every pleasure. Are we storing up treasures in heaven, or are we living like our neighbors? Are we any less materialistic than those around us? There's constant pressure for all of us to compromise and to rationalize. To excuse someone's adultery and soften it by changing the name, they're not committing adultery, they're having an affair. And we just want them to be happy. Or we justify a friend's insatiable desire for things, so we don't call it greed, we call it enjoying the blessings of God. Or to accept someone's workaholism as providing security for their family. Or understanding someone's dishonesty and lies and by merely bending the truth because everyone else does it. And it really doesn't hurt anyone in. Sin is sin to God. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, Paul says. Make a clean break. Develop new habits, new places to go, new activities and interests to occupy your time and your mind rather than be stuck in the old ways. It was the former Secretary of Education, William Bennett, who said, we should not flinch from admitting this truth. We live in a culture which seems dedicated to the corruption of the young, to assuring the loss of their innocence before their time, and it dawned on me recently, the anthropologist David Murray has written that we have now become the kind of society that in the 19th century, almost every Christian denomination felt compelled to missionize. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, Paul wrote in verses 22 to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The imagery he has here in contrast to that futile way of living is taking off a set of dirty rags and putting on a clean one, something that's been washed through the blood of Calvary. It speaks of change, dramatic change, putting off the old, putting on the new, because that's what Jesus died for. 
He even says, you didn't learn Christ in that way of futility. That's not the message of the gospel, to simply go along with the world and society. You came to Christ because you saw that was empty, futile. That it becomes like a woman accumulating years of garbage, thinking this is our life, making no connection between it and our spiritual illness. So much of our difficulty we bring upon ourselves by letting, trying to allow our sin coexist with Christ. And we're trying to fool ourselves that we can continue in our old patterns and yet be true to God. In a, a view from the zoo, former zookeeper Gary Richmond wrote, raccoons go through glandular change at about 24 months of age. And after that, they will often attack their owners for no apparent reason. And since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, he, I felt compelled to mention the change that was coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of mine named Julie. She listened politely to what I had to say as I explained the coming danger, and I'll never forget her answer. It'll be different for me. She smiled and added, Bandit would never hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Judy, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial laceration sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. We can do that with sin sometimes, with our former ways. We think we're different. We're strong enough to resist. We'll just do it one more time and that'll be it. We end up in the same place doing the same things we did before we met Christ. We may be surrounded by sin as the Ephesians were, but we're not to enter its lair. Like Paul said, we are no longer to live as the world does, no longer to rely on empty ways of thinking. Christ calls us to make a clean break. He says, be different. Be different. Put off your old ways. Put on new ones. Be different. Be made new in the attitude of your minds, your thoughts, the way you see the world. Be different. Put on a new self, like a completely new set of clothing. Strip off the old, corrupted way and put on the new. Be different. Be holy and righteous. Because God's call is to make a clean break and turn to Christ. Are we different than the world around us? Are we walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are our values really any different from our friends who may not know Christ? Are our thoughts any different? Are our morals any different? Is our vocabulary any different? Are the jokes we tell any different? Are our priorities any different? Is our dress any different? Is what we watch on TV any different? If not, then how are we different from the world? Or how are we resisting from conforming to its ways and values? Paul told the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Christ died to make it different. And he rose to defeat it, sin. His call is a call to follow, to be different, in a way that touches the world, that shows he's a reality far more than anything we may say or believe. And if we're the same as everyone else, how can we say Jesus makes a difference? If we don't live it, do we really believe it?
Father, we pray that you will help us to realize the futility of, of so many things in the world around us, that they hold out promise, and yet it really goes nowhere. The world often offers the allure of and the promise of happiness, of fun, of so many things, and yet in the end it's a dead end because life comes through you. Help us, God, to be a people of life, a people of hope, of a future, because we have made that break with the past and found new life that is available in Jesus Christ, not to be confined or restricted, but to find freedom that you promise through the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing our hymn of invitation and commitment? And as we do each week, this is an invitation. If there's a commitment or a prayer you would like to seek or someone to pray with, we invite you to come as we sing together. Now.